This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 287th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to be doing a location in the haunted city of Salem, Massachusetts. This location is the House of the Seven Gables, and it was suggested by listener Nicole Cartarelli. Obviously, since we're going to be talking about this house, we're going to be talking about the author Nathaniel Hawthorne as well, who wrote the book that has the same title. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Gloria, SD, Stephanie with an IE, Megan, Gary, Jared, Kristen with a CH, Crystal, and Tom. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment Naughty was suggested by Kim Gasiorowski. For almost 500 years, St. Lamberti Church has had some rather odd objects hanging from its spire. They are a reminder of a terrible time when an Anabaptist rebellion rocked the German city of Munster. The Anabaptists were a Christian sect that held the belief that only willing baptism as an adult could get a person into heaven. Because of this belief, they were not only considered to be heretics, but their children were said to be unsaved. They also believed in a communal form of government where wealth should be shared equally. Even though Catholics and Lutherans were at odds during this time in the 16th century, they both were against the Anabaptists. A preacher in the city named Bernard Rothman didn't like the Catholic control of the city of Munster, and he joined the Anabaptists and preached their ideals from his pulpit at St. Lamberti Church. The angry citizens supported the Anabaptists, and many Catholics and Lutherans fled, fearing for their lives. Rule under the Anabaptists led to polygamy, the burning of all books except the Bible, and corporal punishment was meted out for trivial offenses against the new hierarchy. In June of 1535, Catholic Bishop Von Waldeck gathered a mercenary army and laid siege to the city. They succeeded and arrested three rebel leaders. Jan Mathis, an Anabaptist preacher from Leiden in the Netherlands, and his two closest followers. The three men were tortured and mutilated before being killed. Three iron cages were fashioned, big enough for the men's bodies, and these cages were hung from the spire of the St. Lamberti Church as a warning to any other would-be rebels. The remains were left in the cages for 50 years. In 1800, the original tower was demolished and rebuilt, and the cages were put back in place where they remain today, and that certainly is odd.
afraid of the dark. And now, this month in history. In the month of December, on the 10th in 1985, the Unabomber killed his first victim. Bombings by the Unabomber began in 1978, but he wouldn't kill anybody until 1985. Computer store owner Hugh Scrutton would be that first death. Scrutton found a package in the parking lot of his store. He was killed when he opened it. The bomb was sophisticated and meant to do great harm, as it was filled with nails and splinters. The FBI had already been looking for the domestic terrorists for several years, as he'd already sent or planted several bombs at this point. The search would be the longest and most expensive in FBI history. The Unabomber was finally identified and captured in 1996, he was Ted Kaczynski, and it would be his brother David who would tip off the government after recognizing his brother's writing style and opinions in the Unabomber Manifesto after it was published in newspapers. Kaczynski was sentenced to life without parole. In total, he injured 23 people and killed three. The name Unabomber was created by the FBI and was an acronym created from University and Airline Bomber. Most of my adult listeners have probably read something written by classical author Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nearly all schools require a reading of The Scarlet Letter. I know I had to read it, I believe, when I was a freshman in high school. Hawthorne wrote a lot of different novels and short stories. One of those other novels was The House of the Seven Gables. Within the pages of this volume is a ghost story, and don't I wish that this was the one I was required to read in school. I think I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more than The Scarlet Letter. Nathaniel Hawthorne, when it came to ghosts and the paranormal, claimed to be a skeptic, but he even had some experiences of his own. And this House of the Seven Gables, obviously, since I've told you it's a location we're going to be looking at in this episode, the house that he wrote about is not a fiction. It is an actual home that you can go and visit today. Now, apparently, it's not just the novel or this story about the house that has a haunting involved with it. The house itself is reputedly said to be haunted. Visitors and staff to this now museum claim to have had experiences they cannot explain. Join me as we explore the beliefs of Nathaniel Hawthorne and the history and hauntings of the House of the Seven Gables. In July of 2017, I did a bonus episode for the executive producers of this podcast that featured the Boston Athenaeum. This was an exclusive membership-only library, and many classical authors were members. These were writers like Henry David Thoreau, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, and, of course, Nathaniel Hawthorne. 
In the bonus cast, Ida tell a supernatural experience that Hawthorne claimed to have had one day while in this nation's oldest library. He published this account as The Ghost of Dr. Harris. And what made this experience compelling to me is that, like myself, Hawthorne claimed to be mostly a skeptic when it came to ghosts. And I always find myself believing more of what skeptics tell me or people who describe themselves like myself, open-minded skeptics, because they're not necessarily looking for this or promoting it or getting money because of it. It just makes it a lot more believable to me. Salem, Massachusetts was home for Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was born here on July 4th, 1804, and his family had a long history here dating all the way back to the Salem witch trials. In fact, one of his ancestors, John Hawthorne, was an unrepentant judge during the trials. And what I mean by unrepentant is a lot of other judges later on changed their tune. They were sorry that they had done what they had done. Not John Hawthorne. He never said he was sorry for anything that happened during the Salem witch trials. Hawthorne went to college and published his first work in 1928, but he needed to find a real job to pay the bills, and he ended up at the Salem Custom House. This is another haunted location in Salem. I don't know if he had any experiences there, but I imagine that he had people that worked with him who'd had experiences and might have told him a little bit about it. So he's getting some exposure here to some supernatural stuff. Not only that, he met a man named William Baker Pike here, who was a Swedenborgian spiritualist, and he would discuss with Hawthorne his experiences of communicating with the dead. The author once wrote to Pike that, quote, I should be very glad that these rappers are, in any one instance, the spirits of the persons whom they profess themselves to be. But though I've talked with those who have had the freest communication, there's always been something that makes me doubt. So basically, we can see here, according to Hawthorne's own writing, like most of us, most of you listeners, he was an open-minded skeptic. He would like to believe that these people who are appearing or talking or doing things during seances actually were who they said they were. And keep in mind, we're pretty much in the heart of the Victorian era here, but he just finds it hard to believe. He has a lot of doubt when it comes to it. Now, although he took this stance with his belief about ghosts, it did not prevent him from exploring these themes in his writing. And this brings us to his novel, The House of the Seven Gables. The House of the Seven Gables is a gothic novel that strongly influenced H.P. Lovecraft, one of my favorite authors. So that's really cool to me. Lovecraft said of this work, it is one of New England's greatest contributions to weird literature. The work was published in April 1851 by Tickner and Fields of Boston and features a story that follows the lives of the Pynchian family of New England. The House of the Seven Gables is their ancestral home that was built on land seized from the original owner, who is Matthew Mall, and this was seized by the patriarch of the Pynchian family. Mall was accused of witchcraft and hanged, but he called down a curse on the Pynchian family before he died. Later on in the book, the patriarch, who I believe was Captain Pynchion, ends up dying in a chair in the house. And nobody is sure what caused him to die. It's like he just died sitting there in the chair. And so a lot of them were like, it must be the curse. The tale explores themes dealing with guilt, witchcraft, and the supernatural. Alice Pynchion is driven mad by a spell and dies from shame. So this uh, Matthew Mall is said to have put some kind of a spell on her that makes her do... I think, embarrassing type things. And she has so much shame about it that she just dies from the shame. 
She comes back to haunt the ancestral home because she's died in this way. The spirit of the landowner, Matthew Mall, also haunts the house in the story, probably because he was accused of being a witch and executed for that. Now, while this is all a fiction, the House of the Seven Gables is a real house. And it was actually a place Hawthorne knew well because it belonged to his cousin, Susanna Ingersoll. The home is also known as the Turner Ingersoll Mansion, and perhaps Hawthorne got his inspiration for writing about the house in his novel being haunted because the actual house reputedly was said to be haunted. So let's have a look at this house. I have to tell you, we did not take a tour of this house when we were in Salem, and I'm kicking myself for not doing it because now I wish I had so that I could tell you what it was like to go through it. I've seen pictures of the interior It is definitely decorated in the Victorian era kind of style. It's decorated according to the novel a lot, not necessarily according to the people who had lived there at one time. The House of the Seven Gables is one of the largest timber-framed mansions in North America, still on its original foundation. And its building dates all the way back to 1668, when it was built for Captain John Turner I. That, to me, is amazing a timber-framed mansion on its original foundation that was built back in the 1600s. First of all, that would never last here in Florida, but wow, just wow. Very cool. He had purchased the lot here where he builds the home from Widow Ann Moore. The Turner family was one of the most successful maritime families in New England. They would influence the future maritime traditions in the colonies, and this was spread into several areas, including trading, fishing, and mercantilism. What one sees today is not the original house in the sense that Captain John Turner I didn't build this house and this is the way it's always been. It's obviously changed through the years. And it started off much smaller. The original part of the house was small, built around a central chimney. And it was described as a two by two or two over two, which makes me believe that this would be two rooms on top of two rooms. And then this central chimney right down the middle. Makes a lot of sense if you're trying to keep everybody warm. Around 1680, Turner was able to expand the house with two additions. One of these additions was the great chamber that had high ceilings and large windows. The other addition added a gable to the house and a kitchen lean-to. And when you look at this house, it is really large. There's a lot to it. His son, John Turner II, would inherit the house when he was only nine years old as his father died young. So it passed to his mother, but during this time, women really couldn't own anything. So it was really his, but since he was only nine, obviously he couldn't take over ownership of a house and he's not going to put his mom out. So she was the actual owner of the house. And then later on, he's going to get it. When he was old enough, he decided that he wanted to change the house. He liked the Georgian style. So he added that style to the house. And this would include a lot of wood paneling to the walls of the dining room, parlor and great chamber. And then all of this wood paneling was painted in the modern palettes of the time. John Turner III would be the final Turner to own the home. After the Revolutionary War, he suffered great business losses and came to a point where he could no longer maintain the home and needed the money from its sale to pay off his debts. So this home had been through three generations of the Turner family. Now it's going to be passing on to another family. Captain Samuel Ingersoll was a wealthy ship captain, and he purchased the Turner House in 1782. Ingersoll liked the boxy federal home style that was becoming popular at that time, so he had four of the gables removed, as well as the kitchen lean-to. His daughter was Hawthorne's second cousin, who we've already mentioned, Susanna, 
and she inherited the house when the captain died in 1804. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne and his cousin Susanna were very, very close, and this is despite the fact that they had a 20-year age difference between them. They actually were not first cousins, they were second cousins. Although, with some of my first cousins, I have almost the same age difference. I'm the eldest in my family, and so when I was graduating from high school, my youngest cousin was born. (laughs) So we have uh, quite an age difference there. Susanna used to invite him over for meals all the time. So he was in the house on a regular basis. And Susanna, I guess, was a heck of a storyteller, is what I get from some of the stories that I've heard about her. And that's one of the things that he loved to do, is to go to the house and let her regale him with tales. And then I have a feeling he passed some of those tales on in the novels that he wrote. She would talk about the house. She would talk about things going on with the house, the history of the house, and some other things. He also loved the unique look of this house because it had those seven gables. And it really is a unique house. It's kind of odd because most of us are used to homes that are more rectangular or square in shape. But you've got all of these different gables and parts of the house sticking out in different ways. So it just looks very unique. Susanna died in 1858 and the house passed to her adopted son, Horace Connolly. He stunk at business and ended up losing the house to creditors in 1879. So this is the second time we're going to have the house passing away from a family because of too much debt. The house would fall a little bit into disrepair for a while and nearly became a tenement because whoever took it over was a really bad landlord. They were kind of an absentee landlord, so they weren't making sure that the house was being taken care of. In 1883, the Upton family purchased the home and used it as both a residence and a business. This family would be the ones to come up with the idea of offering tours of the house. I mean, they're thinking this house is old. It's got a lot of history here. It's connected to Nathaniel Hawthorne. He wrote about it in this book. Let's do some tours here. And they were basically a family of entertainers. So it made sense that they would want to do something like tours and entertain with their home. Henry O. Upton was a well-known musician and he taught dance lessons around Salem. His wife, Ida, was a well-known artist. His children taught music and oratory, so they were all into the entertaining kind of thing. And his wife, who is this artist, created a souvenir for people to purchase after tours that she called a witch cup. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but sounds interesting. And I just love that here we are back in the 1880s, and this family's giving tours, and then they have souvenirs to purchase at the end. So it's not just a a modern day thing where you go on a tour and then there's a gift shop or as we like to joke down here at the Disney parks, every time you get off a ride, it opens up into a store. So it's like, here, buy something. The Uptons moved to the Salem Willows neighborhood and decided to sell the house. Carolyn Emerton was a philanthropist and preservationist, and she bought the house in 1908. She founded the House of the Seven Gables Settlement Association which assisted immigrant families settling in Salem. Emerton hired architect Joseph Everett Chandler to restore the house, and this was the perfect guy to hire to do this because he was a major proponent of the colonial revival architecture and he specialized in historic preservation. And I believe right before this, he had gotten done restoring the Paul Revere house, so she had seen this guy's good at what he does. Emerton hoped that by using the house for tours and as a museum, she could raise funds for her settlement program. Emerton modeled the house after the novel as well. There's a secret stairway that was added at this time, 
And I believe this is something that was from the novel. It wasn't something that was actually a part of the house. She also later on through the years purchased the Hooper Hathaway house and the retired Beckett house and had them move to this property. And then eventually Hawthorne's birthplace was moved here too. On this entire property where you've got the house of the Seven Gables, you've got these other homes there as well. So it's kind of like its own little historic park. And tours are run here on a daily basis. So this was a really clever idea for her to purchase this home. She decides to start the Settlement Association to help out immigrants who were coming in, especially children. So she names her association after the house. And then she's going to use the house to fund this settlement program. And I believe I read that some of the funds still do go to this association. So they've kept that running. Now, I mentioned earlier that staff and visitors all report some kind of unexplained activity in the home. But most of the time, if you take the staff aside and you ask them, they'll be like, nope, not haunted, haven't had any experiences here. I don't know if it's because there really are people who haven't had experiences there that are working there or if they're told not to talk about it. I don't know. In doing the research here, I saw both people who were sure, positive, this is one of the most haunted locations in Salem. And then I saw others that said it was totally debunked. There was no supernatural activity going on here. As I like to do with all the shows, I'm going to leave it to you guys, but I'm going to tell you about some of the stories going on here. And what makes me lean towards that there's probably something going on here is the fact that we have multiple ghosts that they're talking about. It's not just one. Sometimes when I'm looking into a location and they are just mentioning one ghost and there's maybe only a couple people that have had experiences with it, I tend to doubt that a little bit going, well, maybe it was just, you know, the power of suggestion. Maybe that person themselves is haunted, brought something with them. Who knows? But when you're talking about several ghosts at a location, then I start going, well, maybe something is going on here. The other reason why I kind of lean towards this having something going on is looking at Hawthorne. He is a skeptic, but when he writes a book with this House of the Seven Gables as the site where all this stuff is going on, basically it's the center of his book, and he throws ghosts into the story, I don't know. I mean, this isn't a guy who's really known for that. If, if we're talking about Charles Dickens, H.P. Lovecraft, M.R. James, then I'm going to say, okay, I understand having ghosts in the story. But when it comes to Nathaniel Hawthorne, I generally don't say, oh, yeah, he writes ghost stories. So for him to throw that into this story about a house that he's actually been in, that he knows things about, his cousin Susanna has regaled him with stories, makes me wonder what she told him. Did she tell him some stories about experiences that she had had in the house? Or maybe she'd heard about other people having experiences in the house. It just seems like common sense to me that she probably had experiences or heard stories, shares them with him, and then he writes about the house being haunted. Now, the staff may say that they've had no experiences, but plenty of visitors claim to have seen apparitions or felt something unexplained. There are stories of at least five ghosts here. Susanna Ingersoll loved this house, and her spirit still seems to be attached to it. Her full-bodied apparition has been seen in the home. Visitors claim to see her looking at them out of windows when they're touring the gardens. Another ghost is said to be the spirit of a young boy. He resides in the attic and is heard playing up there. There are the sounds of disembodied footsteps and laughter. It was thought that the Turner servants lived in the attic, and it is set up today with a child's rocking chair and sleeping mat. 
So did one of the servant's children die up there? And that's who this little boy is. Was he a member of one of the other families at Turner or an Ingersoll? And perhaps he had died in the home and we just don't know anything about that. There's another personal account that claims that Hawthorne's son's spirit has been seen. Lisa from Long Island wrote, I decided to take a tour of the House of the Seven Gables property, also known as the Turner Ingersoll Mansion, located at 54 Turner Street. On that property now sits the birth home of American author Nathaniel Hawthorne, which was actually moved from Union Street onto Turner Street. While on the tour, she snapped a photo outside, and in this picture, you can make out what looks like a young boy in the shrubbery. Now, Paradolia, when I looked at this picture, and you can find it if you Google it, I was not able to copy and paste it into the show notes. I don't know. It could just be the way the shrubberies are sitting there or something else going on. I wasn't positive that I was looking at the spirit of a young boy. But there are people who look at it and say, yep, and that sure looks like Nathaniel Hawthorne's son. I believe there's a picture of him in the home, a painting or something. And so that's what they say it looks like. Another spirit said to be haunting this house is a woman who's doing the work of a seamstress. She's seen sewing and walking in the house. Some claim that there's a residual haunting on the secret staircase. The apparition of a black man has been seen going up and down on the stairs. Now, the only issue with this is that the secret staircase is more of a modern thing that has been added to the house. It was added back in 1908. So this is way after slavery is already done with. So how could there be a black man going up and down these stairs? I'm not sure. If people are really seeing this, were there possibly servant stairs in the back of the house there? And the secret staircase has taken its place. So I'm not sure if we have a real apparition going on here, residual, or people have just made up a story. I don't know. People also claim that they feel like they're being watched. Now, there are a bunch of portraits in this house, and y'all know how it goes when you've got portraits and you kind of walk to the side of them and the eyes seem to follow you. People claim that the portraits in this house do that to them all the time. Are the tour guides pretending that there's no ghostly activity because they don't want that reputation for the house? With so many different spirits being identified, it would seem that there must be some kind of activity going on. Or is it just that Hawthorne wrote about ghosts and people have projected this into the house? Is the House of the Seven Gables haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I definitely plan on making it to Salem again one day. I loved that city. It's so fabulous. Especially if you love old cemeteries. There's no place better than to go into the cemeteries in Salem. And I definitely didn't get a chance to see everything that was there to be seen. So definitely have to return there one day. I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And I did get an email from Jan. She said, I enjoyed your moment noddity segment, which was about shepherds on stilts. Since I'm a fiber person, nearly all my time taken up with knitting, spinning, and weaving, it reminded me of pictures I saw of one of these shepherds relaxing on his stilts and knitting while watching his flock. Well, they had to have something to occupy their time. I'm sure that you saw many of the drawings and photos of these amazing shepherds while doing your research, but in case you missed these, I've included a couple of websites. And if you Google shepherds on stilts south of France, you probably will be able to find some of those pictures and get a look at this. When I was doing the research, I don't know that I clued in to the fact that there were some shepherds that were actually knitting while they were on their stilts. I did see them doing other things. 
these guys were able to do everything on those stilts. They basically lived their lives on them. I would have never imagined that they'd be out there watching their sheep while knitting. But hey, it works, right? So I thought that was very cool. Thanks for sharing that, Jan. And we have a lot of knitters out there in the listenership. So I'm sure you guys would all enjoy hearing that as well. Most of you know that you can find History Goes Bump on all different kinds of podcatchers out there from iHeartRadio to Spotify to CastBox, Apple Podcasts. We have a YouTube channel and the list goes on. But we can add one more location now, Pandora. I don't know how many of you listen to music on Pandora, but they finally figured out there's this thing called podcasts out there and they decided to jump into the game. They're doing it a little bit differently than other podcast apps. They've handpicked just a few podcasts out of the hundreds of thousands of podcasts that are out there. They only were going to go with a few to begin with. It's kind of running in beta. They're getting a feel for it. What they really want this to be is not just a place where you go to listen to podcasts. They want to be a place you go to for them to suggest to you podcasts. So when they see what you're really listening to and what you seem to like, they're going to make suggestions to you about similar shows. Maybe you might like listening to this or that or the other thing. So for this initial jump into the podcast scene, they asked History Goes Bump to be one of the podcasts that they feature. So we are up there on Pandora. Very excited about that. It's going to open up a whole new door for us because there are, I think, millions of people who listen to music on Pandora and now maybe they'll listen to podcasts instead of music. And hopefully History Goes Bump. That would be fabulous. Speaking of which, it's coming up to the end of the year. It's time to start making some resolutions for the new year. And I would love it if all of my listeners would make the resolution to share History Goes Bump with at least two people in the new year. That's really how this podcast gets out there to the masses is by word of mouth. And I would love it if you guys could do that. Also, Christmas Eve is coming up and we always do a live broadcast on that evening. We will be doing that again this year from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be doing it via Facebook Live. So if you're not on Facebook, uh, I might try to put us up on YouTube, but it's really difficult for me to get the YouTube. It just, uh, last year it kept crashing and everything. So I'm not sure I'm going to go the YouTube route. I'll think about it, but definitely going to be doing Facebook Live. Going to be sharing some of the flash fiction that we didn't already share in the anniversary special, and I'll have some other scary stories as well. So hopefully you guys can join us for that. Even if you can't be there for the whole time or you can only come towards the end or a little bit, please join us anyway. At any time, we'd love to have you pop in. Wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Hang out a little bit. You can ask some questions and I'll be willing to answer those. And I'm actually thinking about doing a live for New Year's, maybe New Year's Eve, and doing that as a Q&A. I thought that would be kind of fun. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the cemetery... Alan Belomo, Luann Hewen, and I know I probably butchered those last names, and David Whiting, all three of you are going to be getting a chest tomb. And I'd like to thank Chris White and Andrea Kano for increasing their support. Chris, you're going to be getting moved to a marble headstone, and Andrea, you're going to be getting a garden crypt. Thanks, everybody, for your support. And now we have some more eulogies by Mort. Eulogies by Mort. 
Joanne Lund was a fan of the Gothic and Doctor Who. She'd been a long-time member of the Spooktacular crew. She visited the Winchester Mystery House. Her dirge will be the Blue Danube by Strauss. Nicole Cardarelli had a haunted picture of Poe. Didn't he write something about a crow? Oh wait, a raven was the bird. And now, I can announce Nicole is interred. Laurel Christic liked the story of poor dead Harry Lime. An Orson Welles classic that is sublime. She had visited the Holy Cross Abbey and said that it wasn't too shabby. Alison Schneider had been around HGB a long time, but now she has come to the end of her lifetime. She caught a green orb on the Red Onion Brothel tour, so it would seem to ghosts she held an allure. Joseph Tamulinus was a very crafty guy. Before he had to go and die, he made some nifty HGB logo coasters. You know, we need some more pin-up posters. Mark Shoemaker wrote No Victims, a supernatural suspense novel. His final resting place is anything but a hovel. He grew up in the hills of the mountain state. Now he'll be forever behind this gate. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.